I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, a planner at Gould Evans in Kansas City, and I am joined today by our regular co-host, Chuck Barone, founder of the Strong Towns organization and Strong Towns board member and fellow John Reuter, who has spent the last decade working in environmental policy and politics. Welcome to you both. Thanks for joining. Thank you. It's nice to have John here. I think working was in air quotes, wasn't it? John, You do you call what you do work? <laughs> I do. Um, it's great. To be, it's great to be here with at least one of you. <laughs> and Chuck, it, it's it's uh, is uh, well, you're here too. <laughs> yeah, and Chuck's here too. <laughs> well, it is good to see you both, and we have a very interesting and thoughtful piece that I think is going, or at least thought provoking piece that I think is going to spur a very interesting conversation today. Um, It is entitled Cars Are Here to Stay. It is published by what I think is a blog or some kind of publication called Persuasion. It's a Substack, I think. Yeah, it's something like that. I don't know that it is Substack, though. It's something else. And I apologize. I'm not sure what the publication platform is. But it is published by Alex Trimbeth, who is the deputy director of the Breakthrough Institute, which is an environmental research center in Oakland, California. So this is basically a critique about the climate movement, which is becoming increasingly enamored with the vision of creating a car-free utopia. While the author is an avid urbanist and environmentalist, he says that the ideals of the movement are disconnected from the reality of many Americans who see the personal cost of car dependency as a worthwhile price to pay for a suburban lifestyle. It also doesn't fully grapple with the fact that urban places are increasingly accommodating the affluent workers of the knowledge economy and a car-free utopia vision doesn't address the realities of Americans working in the industrial and service sectors who are increasingly moving to less expensive suburbs and exurbs. He also challenges the assessment that the fossil fuel and auto industries are completely to blame for the sprawl of our cities and says that really personal preference shifts at a global scale are driving the issue. He points to the example of Paris, France, where urban density has dropped by half while, while per capita car usage has doubled over the last 50 years. And as the auto industry rapidly moves towards reducing carbon emissions via electric vehicles, the author says climate and urbanist movements that wish to make real progress will have to reckon with the enduring appeal of cars and sprawl, and that a more expansive vision for climate-friendly transportation would also be more attractive to people who can't or don't want to live like he does. So... 
Very interesting article. I know, Chuck, you are raising your hand, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about this, but I do want to start with John because, John, you, oh. I know, sorry. <laughs> well, John, you, you know, you have a background in environmental policy and politics, and I kind of just want to ask you a loaded question and get your perspective on whether there is a future outcome where the prevalence of driving personal automobiles at the scale that we currently do coexists with a sustainable or and or carbon free world. What are your thoughts? I have two thoughts about this. So first, first, just a direct answer to your question. No, I think that we have to actually reduce vehicle miles traveled. I think it's really important. I think it's essential to dealing um, with carbon pollution. And I think it's important to dealing with just, just in general and sustainability. Um, I think we can also talk more about land use policy and how that plays into it. But we absolutely have to reduce vehicle miles traveled. It's also true, I think, that we need an electric vehicle transition. That we have to actually shift off of gas vehicles and actually move to electric vehicles. I think that's really key. Out of these two, both two really key steps, one of actually reducing vehicle miles traveled and one about actually making the transition to electric vehicles, the one that everybody's focused on right now in, envi- in the environmental movement is the transition to electric vehicles. The part about vehicle miles traveled reducing that is actually really under-focused on right now. So I read this article and it just really made me roll my eyes because one, I think he's wrong in terms of wanting to ignore one problem uh, of the vehicle miles traveled and figuring out how much people are dependent on automobiles. But two, there's a total obsession with electric vehicles right now. If you look at the legislation that's being fought for in Congress, if you look at where environmental movements are at, if you look at the alliance um, with unions around um, you know, helping build up Detroit's economy and building more electric vehicles in America, like the president going and driving around and an F-150, you know, EV, that's where the, that's where the attention is right now. That's where the, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, the gas is right now in the uh, environmental movement nationally is all about EVs. And I think I'm, I'm in the camp that that's an important piece of the solution. But the idea that we can get where we need to go without also dealing with vehicles, mild travel is just is just absolutely um it's nutty. And to say that we should focus less on that right now is so counter to the reality of where the attention is and frankly is really uh, is really wrongheaded and is just adding to a uh, uh, to a lack of attention on an issue that's really going to be key. Hmm. Well said. All right, Chuck, your turn. We had to hold you off for a few minutes. No, it's okay. It's okay. Because <laughs> I, I, I was, I'm interested in John's take on this too, because the one of the reasons why this article is interesting to me, people don't know, as we're preparing for the show, you generally share some articles and we discuss them kind of briefly, say, well, which one would we want to take? And I looked at this one and I thought, okay, I'm interested in this. The title, the headline here is Cars Are Here to Stay, which is a, a provocative headline, right? But then the, the sub headline or the blurb underneath it says, real progress on climate change will require innovations that some on the left won't like. I'm kind of interested in that because I'm one of these paradigm shift, like what are the things the left needs to come to grips with? What are the things the right needs to come to grips with? You know, how do we change the way we're talking about these things? And I started to read the article and it was just one, what I would just call misperception or mischaracterization of, you know, beliefs after another. I'm going to take it a little bit further than John did. I hear lip service being paid Uh, on the political left in this country to things like walkable cities and walkable neighborhoods and reducing VMT. I I see them saying like, these are important strategies. 
But, but then I look at the actions and it's the actions at the federal level. I look at the actions at the state level. I look at the actions in our most progressive left of center cities. And I see an absolute obsession with funding automobile expansion. I see an absolute obsession with funding new automobile uh, modes of, you know, ways of getting around, rebuilding bridges, rebuilding expressways, building tunnels, funding major infrastructure packages, all this stuff. And it seems like the the things that, you know, Alex Trembeth here is trying to say is that, well, the, the left is going to have to swallow electric cars if they want, you know, and that's going to mean some... And I'm like, the, the, the entire progressive movement today is in a sense premised on the notion that all the other stuff they're doing is going to be done with electric cars. I mean, I, I feel like there's not even a debate here about the electrification of the cars. All the investments that the left are making in this country in automobile transport is somehow like mitigated in their minds by the idea that, well, it will be electric cars driving on this. And, and I'm, I'm going to agree with John that I think it's an important strategy, but I think it's a strategy that is dramatically overplayed in our minds as a reality on the ground or a reality that is like inevitable. And I don't actually see it that way. I mean, m- maybe the electrification of automobiles will be inevitable in 20 years or 30 years. I know we're transitioning to that right now, but hey, like my dad drives a 30-year-old car. These things have long shelf lives. It's not like they're going to, you know, we're all of a sudden going to be electric in five years, but we are going to be driving everywhere because that's what we're investing in from the top down, especially in our left of center places. Yeah. And I do, you know, when, when reading the title and the headline of this article, basically, I I had kind of the same perception as you did, Chuck, where, you know, I do sympathize with a critique against kind of an all or nothing approach on on all kinds of issues where there's like a purist vision of what the right outcome is and that anything else is like futile or or wrong somehow. And to me, that demonstrates a really destructive level of hubris and I would say the same for really the opposite position, you know, all positions that kind of take this, this hardline stance on these kinds of issues. But, you know, to your point, John, I, I do think it, the fact is that many industries and many people are going to react to, to changing circumstances in a variety of different ways. And electric vehicles represent one of many approaches, but I don't think they represent this like holistic path towards a zero carbon future. Um, and, you know, is a zero carbon future the only measure of sustainability in the first place? What other metrics exist? And, um, you know, can we include the unsustainability of maintaining the level of service and infrastructure required to maintain the level of suburban sprawl that we currently have and are continuing to build, not only in terms of financial resources, but in terms of also like actual material resources, the actual concrete and asphalt that is required to build that way and to rebuild that way as, as the life cycle of that infrastructure eventually causes it to need to be replaced. Well, this is the other thing that made me just really furious in reading this article, um, <laughs> is this idea that it's going to be affordable for people to go and live in suburban and exurban places that are really uh, where you have to travel every day, where things are far distances from each other, where there's a really low level of density. We know that these places require 
massive government subsidization, massive amounts of infrastructure, massive amounts of roads. Um, and that money isn't going to keep coming, right? We know that right now the only way there's going to be a big climate deal is if it includes a bunch of money to cut down the deficit right now politically in D.C. That's the only way we're going to actually see big climate legislation if there's also an equal amount of money put into cutting the deficit. What that tells me is we're starting to see the end. If a Democratic majority has to do big deficit cuts to be able to keep moving forward um, and pay for all of it, that tells you where we're headed as a country in terms of the ability to keep subsidizing this way, this this way of life, this style of life, this lifestyle um, on the edge of town. And so it really is kind of an awful thing to be advising people to go and live in places where their services are going to slowly over their life degrade, where their quality of life is going to decline, where their values of their houses are going to decline, as we aren't able to upkeep that infrastructure. As their ability to even get around in their cars is going to get harder. Uh, because the ways that they were doing it isn't going to be maintained at that same level anymore. Their commutes are going to lengthen. Like the suburbs are not this paradise. And part of why people, they're becoming more affordable and people are being pushed out into them. People are not choosing them. People are being pushed out into them because they can't afford to live in cities anymore because all these rich people said, oh my goodness, cities are really cool now. I want to go in there. Um, Let's go in there. So that's what the market's telling us. And um to pretend that this is choice rather than a failure of our cities to create policies that create room for people who want to live there, people who work there, people who want to raise their families there, people who want access to some of those schools, it's really ridiculous. Our, our job should be to actually figure out how to create real choice rather than to force people through the unaffordability of our cities and our housing policies and our land use policies in our cities, pushing them out, uh, which is what's happening today. I'm sympathetic to a large degree to a lot of the right of center movements uh, or arguments around uh, some of these issues, uh, but there's this trap that they always fall into. That to me is is just really difficult to reconcile in your brain, and, and that is this kind of we, we have to justify the living pattern of our voters or the people that that are supporting you know right of center kind of parties, and so there becomes this kind of I think silly internal conversation where you start with a premise that suburbs are good and commuting lifestyle is good. And now we have to kind of back justify everything else. And I think to me, instead of trying to reconcile that, oh, you know, people on the left are going to have to accept electric cars because we're just going to have cars. I I think what is more likely is that people on the right, this author in particular, is going to have to come to grips with the idea that the commuter notion, the commuter version of America, the idea that the way that we should arrange ourselves on the landscape is that people live way out from where they work, get in a car, and then commute in in a commuter shed, that somehow the money, the time, the energy that is spent in propping that model up is a good use of finances, is a good use of our resources. I I think the most likely scenario is that, yes, we're still going to have cars 20 years from now. We're still going to have 30 years from now. We're just going to make shorter trips because most of what we do is going to be more localized because the way we're doing it today, way spread out, is is got a huge financial burn to it. We can talk about the, the, the carbon burn and we can talk about the environmental burn and those rates are really high as well. But if we just focus on the financial burn of it, it's, it's a, it is a not viable way of running an economy. And go ahead and justify the suburbs. Go ahead and say there's going to be cars in the future. I'm I'm agreeing with we are going to have suburbs. We are going to have cars in the future. But 
don't sit and pretend that it's going to be looked like it does today where people choose to live in a third ring suburb and commute into a center city where their job is. It's going to be a third ring suburb is either going to become a town, a neighborhood, a place, or it's going to cease to exist because nothing is going to be able to prop it up unless it, it thickens up and becomes an actual place. I don't understand this focus on market preference in this article because to John's point, not everybody who moves to an outlying suburban or exurban area is necessarily moving there because that is their preference. And I think that those who are moving to those areas due to preference may not have the same preference if the cost of the development pattern were accurately reflected. Um, I think that the sheer level of service and infrastructure that is required and frankly expected in that pattern is just very unsustainable from a fiscal perspective. And that is not well communicated um, across the country by cities. And it's not reflected in the actual tax bills because of, you know, really hidden subsidies at the federal, state, and local levels. So regardless of areas becoming, you know, zero carbon from a building or transportation perspective, it doesn't really address these underlying issues that come out of the lack of productivity in the tax base on a per acre basis. John, I want to ask you a question because it it does feel like there is an assumption here that there's somehow a tension at least assumed in this article, between a, a kind of sense, a left of center, climate sensitive approach, and you know the idea that we would electrify the grid and have uh, you know auto based transportation that is based on electric cars. Where does that perception come from? Is there a congruence there, or can you make the best case that the the author's trying to make here? Because I. I found it absolutely divergent with the reality as I experience it, not just in, you know, politics, but just in the way that people live in their places. I I don't see this, you know, tension between the progressive left conversation in this country and, you know, the idea that people would drive electric cars. I can't make an explanation on on that side of it in terms of like that disconnect because you know, liberals love electric vehicles. They're very excited about them. They like to champion them. They like to talk to them. They talk about them. They like to <laughs> maybe talk them. to them if you have right. a Tesla. Talk to them, have conversations <laughs> with electric vehicle. They're all about it. They like to pet them. Um, <laughs> all of those things are true. Here's my theory here is sometimes I see people um, trying to win over the right on environmental issues by creating weird parodies of the left. And I wonder if that's what's happening here. If, oh, we got to try to convince the right wing to like environmental policy more, to like this environmental policy. So I'm going to create this false version of the left, a pretend version of the left that doesn't like technology, that doesn't like vehicles. I'm going to go find some random Luddites out there who don't yeah, want a bunch of vehicles. hippies. Right. I'm going to find um, <laughs> a small, uh, I'm going to also go and highlight um, a small section of the environmental movement that's obsessed with vehicle miles traveled, I would argue correctly so as a key component of reducing climate emissions, but they are a minor part of the overall, um, in terms of power, right? They're, they're more minor than they need to. And I think part of what we're doing at Strong Towns is increasing that voice around that importance. But that said, um, and I'm going to highlight those things. I'm going to manipulate what they're saying a little bit. And I'm going to say, boy, aren't they awful. So now see, shouldn't all you right-wing people agree with me about aren't electric vehicles being good? And you don't have to associate with these awful environmentalists over here. 
Uh, it's sort of a tactic of division to try to build a new base. Maybe that's what's going on here. That's my best theory of it. But I'll tell you, I think that's pretty awful politics. I don't think that's how you actually win an argument. I don't think that's how you actually build a united base. And I think to solve issues like climate change and to solve issues like the affordability of our cities and our towns and our suburbs and creating great places for people to live, we need to have more strategies about unity rather than about division and the more that our, our yes and approaches um, rather than, oh my gosh, it's a competition between these two things. The idea that we can't both make a shift to electric vehicles and reduce vehicle miles traveled, to me, just seems these are not in competition. With, these are not competing ideas. These are things that we, we need to do both and we can. You, you've said it to me a lot, John, and I, I, I want to agree with you. Let me give you, a, let me give you a, 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 another critique and let you tell me why I'm wrong, because you're really good at that, and, and I appreciate it. It does feel often like the opposite is true of what is being asserted in this article, which it feels like often that uh, the, the, the center-left politicians that I hear and the center-left dialogues that I hear around climate change almost obsess about electric cars and almost obsess about an electrification of the grid in a way that, in a sense, crowds out what I think are easier strategies, more environmentally sound strategies of reducing VMT. Those re reduction in VMT strategies actually align with other environmental strategies and align with other, what I would say are right-wing, you know, conservative uh, fiscal responsibility strategies a lot more. But a lot of those feel to me like they get squeezed out because there is a fetish almost, especially on the political left with the electrification of the, the automobile system. Am I, am I over-interpreting something um, or is there something, something there with that? I think people want electric vehicles, first of all, especially with where gas prices are right now. That always reminds people how much they'd like to not have to pay for gas when it goes up like it is right now. I think that the market is driving some of that electrification, actually, um, and cares about it, too. I think workers and unions are very excited about electrification. So I think that's worth noting, too. Um, companies are excited about it, right? They're making these commitments. It's where things are headed. So what you're seeing with the excitement around electric vehicles in the environmental movement and on the left uh, uh, significantly, although not just purely on the left, a real business case is being made for it too, is really the excitement of getting to swim downstream for once and not have to push back. You don't have to ask anybody to sacrifice anything substantial to switch to electric vehicle. I don't think that we have to sacrifice to lower vehicle miles traveled either, but we do have to change how we live. I think those changes are going to make us enjoy our lives better. I think they're going to help us connect with our neighbors. I think they're going to build community. I think they're going to make it more affordable. I think they're going to mean we get to spend more time with our families. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. Um, depends, right? But all those things I think are true from those things, but they really require a change. And I think what you're seeing is that right now, the primary focus of the environmental movement is on walking through an open door on things like let's switch to wind and solar now that they're actually more affordable, right? So a lot of the things that are like in like this big agenda that's being moved right now and, on the, and the focus is on all the things that are just common sense and require very little change from us. The stuff that's getting, the stuff that's not happening is the things that are like, you know, we got to restructure society in some ways. We have to actually figure out how to build our communities in a smarter way. Um, and those things are harder and they're harder both in terms of persuading people of but also they're harder for the people who are doing the activism to understand. There's still an, the idea that we should just build more stuff and just build more infrastructure still runs very deep 
in our government, in our communities, in our politicians, among everybody. And we've made a lot of progress at Strong Towns. But the idea of still building more road miles, which encourages more vehicle miles traveled, is still is still maybe one of the last remaining political consensuses in D.C. It's what we saw the biggest bill, right, that's passed by partisanship in a long time was around that consensus. So I think that's why you see the reluctance to go down that path, you saw, you know, is that it's, it's harder. It's, it's harder politics. Yeah. And at the same time, market preference isn't just um, geared towards the suburbs. I mean, the fact that housing has gone up tremendously in in the cities, I mean, is showing that that market preference is also shifting for walkable urban areas as well. And the people who are, you know, probably getting the most hurt by our so-called market preferences are people who maybe can't afford to live in the uh, lesser desired exurb or suburban area and can't afford to uh, buy an electric vehicle. Right. It- it does feel like the fetish with electric cars and and John, you saying walk through the open door. I, I can respect that and I get that as a strategy. It does seem though like there's a, a tension there in in the realization that you know those strategies can get us so far, but to get if we just look strictly at the climate issue, to get to where we need to get to is going to require as you say, all of the above strategy. It's going to require a significant reduction in VMT and a change in how we inhabit the landscape. And it does seem like, at least in the short term, and maybe you can convince me that in the long term there isn't, but it seems like at least in the short term, there's a tension between strategies that would double down on you know, what the author in this article is arguing for, a suburban development pattern with commuters and people driving, and, uh, you know, funding that and funding that lifestyle and, you know, a, 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 a response at the federal level to higher gas prices being released the petro- strategic petroleum reserve and make sure nobody drives less. Um, you know, you've got a, a tension there in the short term between what we're funding and what we're paying for and the transition we need to make over the long term. And I, I have difficulty reconciling that. And maybe I'm a, a little bit fixated on the second half. Like I fetishize the, uh, the the shift in our development pattern more than I do the electric grid. T- tell me how this works itself out over the long term in a way that can make me optimistic about this. I think that different people are situated to drive those different reforms. So I actually think when you think about electric vehicle policy, it's actually a really useful and good focus. And I would say the grid in general, greening the grid is actually a really good focus for the federal government to be on. It's the right kind of problem that they can actually solve really effectively. I think when we look at things like our land use pattern, we're actually counting on local leaders to step up. I think there are some things you can do federally, but not as much as you might, you know, not as much as I think some people would hope or, or believe. I think there's ways we can restructure how funding goes out on transportation funding. I think we can reduce the support for new roads. I think there's a lot we can do. But a lot of those things are going to, where the, you know, where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, is going to be back in our cities and our communities and are going to be local level decisions. And we are seeing some really phenomenal things happening at the local level around walkability, but that's just not the conversation in DC. So if you said, what's the focus in like a Boise or what's the focus in a um, or in a Boston, right, or some of these other places where the mayor of Boston is figuring out how to provide people with free um, transit, which some people go, whoa, that's radical. But I'm like, why? You get free roads every day. Like, you get your free transportation infrastructure. Why can't other people have free transportation infrastructure? This doesn't seem, frankly, a lot cheaper. Um, so I think you're seeing that kind of innovation happening. 
And I think that that's part of what to understand is these are twin solutions and solutions that fit together. Um, but not every solution is going to be a federal solution. We're going to need state action. We're going to need local action. We're going to need individual action. We're going to need private sector action. We're going to need public sector action. This is a this is a crisis that really requires a lot of different people and a lot of different roles to do their part. Um, and we should not think of every problem. I, mean, I think this is where you and I, Chuck, really have a lot of alignment over the years. Not every problem is a federal government problem. And not every solution is going to be a federal government solution. Sometimes it's going to be about um, local communities um, and sometimes states solving those things. Yeah. In other words, a complex and adaptive system is really what's going, how this is going to play out. Well, I hope so. It's just frustrating at times when it it feels like, you know, the, the the part that's a local solution is actually fighting or getting crowded out by the part that's the federal solution, right? I mean, I, I think we can go back and look at the uh, the infrastructure bill that was just passed, and obviously there's some things in there uh, that the climate uh, community really likes and wants to see happen. There's more that they would like to see happen, and I know that there's a lot of push for some of those things to get through. Um, but it's hard not to look at that as like a big, huge, uh, you know, roadway building bill uh, that we can see at the local level crowding out uh, the what, what I would like to call just the sensitivities uh, at the local level. You know, our, our city councils, our city staffs, our mayors are very sensitive to where the infrastructure money is flowing. They're less sensitive to the you know, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 project they could do at the block level that would actually really have a radical effect on VMT if you started to add those all up. That's where I get frustrated because it feels like this article that we're we're reviewing today feels like it kind of sits outside of the debate and just throws stupid into the debate. (laughs) You know, like when I feel like the, the, the tension here is how you know how much are we going to continue to fund the auto you know the suburban experiment the auto based development pattern how much are we going to fund that uh, with the assumption in a sense being that well it'll be okay because we'll have electric cars i yeah i think that that's a real concern i will say um, when we look at the U.S. Department of Transportation when we look at Pete Buttigieg right um, who i think is one of here's what i think we're here's the moment i think we're at i think we're going to have one of the best secretary of transportations we've ever had who's putting a team around himself and some of the best people we've ever had and they have a massively flawed piece of legislation when it comes to transportation policy that they're trying to implement and i am hopeful that they're going to figure out how to get some good to come out of it but i think it's a really challenging situation um it's clearly not the bill that they would have written it's not the bill the president proposed it's not the bill that frankly the house proposed which i think was a particularly strong bill that would have actually been a major change in how we do things um it failed to fall you know that followed the advice from groups like smart growth and transportation for america um that really aligned with a strong town's uh philosophy in many ways uh, so i'm i'm i guess i'm not quite as uh as dark about this as you are, Chuck, if only because I see the progress happening too. I think we are seeing movement. I think we're seeing better leadership. Uh, but we have a ways to go before we break this flawed consensus in D.C. that keeps making our places less affordable, that exasperates the, cl- the, the climate crisis, and that makes it harder to create a good life. 
I think we started this whole thing with you guys were crabby and I was yes, happy. Yes, I was and just I think about we're ending this that. the other way, right? I was just about to say that. Chuck was in <laughs> such a good mood at the beginning of this and now he's cranky. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I knew I'm we could do it. This was a great transference of my crankiness to you, uh, Chuck. So I appreciate it. I'll just that. absorb nice. all yeah. of your angst. Yes. <sighs> all right. Well, it sounds like we managed to accomplish what we were trying to accomplish today. Now Chuck's in a bad mood. Um, but before we conclude <laughs> today, uh, we're going to do the down zone, which is the part of the show where we share anything that we have been reading, watching, listening to, anything that's been taking up time in our lives. And Chuck, I'm going to throw it to you because I may have forgotten to let John know about this. And so I want to give John <laughs> a chance to think about something before uh, we, we put him on the spot. If John will just let us get a, a see Franklin. That's what, whenever I talk, chat with John, I just want to see Franklin because that's John's dog. And if John's like, you know, maybe you could spend more time home with your family. I'm thinking I, if, if I, if Franklin was my dog, I'd want to be home all the time. He's a pretty cool dude. <laughs> Where is Franklin? Um, Franklin's out playing with other dogs right now. So he's, not with me, so he's not on the call. Although I have to say he, visuals of him don't really work well on podcasts has been my that's experience. That's true. That's true. Um, he's a funny he's, guy, though. He's a bit of a Muppet-looking golden doodle, just to help people Aww. understand it. I, that's why I, you can actually reach me at MuppetDad at StrongTowns.org if you want to, the, yeah. uh, the email address that Chuck has helpfully set up. So just if you want to reach out, feel free. MuppetDad at StrongTowns.org. It really does work. You really will reach me uh, if you want to reach out. <laughs> I did do that. <laughs> uh, so um, – I've been, I started a new book called The Disordered Mind. It's by Eric Candle. The subtitle is What Unusual Brains Tell Us About Ourselves. And uh, this is another in this like series of books on mental cognition that I've really gotten into lately. Um, this one looks at um, everything from people who have suffered specific brain injuries and traumas to people who are you know, far along the autism spectrum. Um, those are the parts that I've gotten into so far. There's a lot more here in the book, but it, it looks at what can we learn about how the brain operates and, and works and what consciousness, consciousness is and, and, and how we perceive things. Uh, the brain is such a fascinating, fascinating thing. And I, I feel like the more that I get immersed in this dialogue and this conversation about mental cognition and the brain, there's a, there's a, there's a train of thought, and I think we can oversimplify it by just calling it AI. There's a train of thought that just says if, if you put enough um, you know, microchips together or an, enough computer power capacity together, you can ultimately create a consciousness uh, because that's all the brain is, is just a really concentrated bunch of neurons that, that interact with each other. And it's fascinating because that is the vibe you get from the tech bros. That's the vibe you get from Silicon Valley and, and from that whole conversation. But when you actually engage neuroscience and you look at the science of consciousness and brains and how we perceive ourselves and the world around us, and all, you see that it's like vastly more complex. And it's making me very hopeful because I, I have this, you know, I, I, I kind of subscribe to the dystopian notion that you know, the singularity is is not going to be a happy event for humans when computers all of a sudden have, you know, the, their own brain power beyond us. 
Um, but as I read these books about just consciousness and how the brain works, I, I'm more convinced than ever that the whole tech bro conversation is really missing something fundamental here. And maybe that gap, maybe that bridge, you know, that gap can be bridged in some way. But uh, boy, it's a good book so far, and uh, I, I think this is about the dozenth book on this topic I've I've gotten into in the last couple of years, and it's it's deeply fascinating stuff. This is like cutting edge work, really. Yeah, that's definitely one to add to the list. That sounds fascinating, uh, John. Hopefully, that was enough time. Yes. No, <laughs> I had I had to go back through, and I'm looking at my Audible books to think about what I'd read most recently here, and uh, and there is one I've actually been thinking a lot about. Wabi Sabi for Artists, Designers, Poets, and Philosophers. And this is a book all about trying to like codify what Wabi Sabi is. And Wabi Sabi is this idea of basically enjoying the aging of things, enjoying the process of degradation in a way and finding beauty in it. And the idea that everything doesn't need to be perfect and enjoying the mending of objects. And I think this is really a key idea for us to get our head. Like, here's what I like. I can't help but tie these things over to strong towns and everything else here too. But I think too often we're always just obsessed with what's brand new, what's clean, what's sparkling, what's shiny. Um, you know, right? Let's let's go to another ribbon cutting. That's where our focus is. And I think one of the things I've been trying to focus on my life, both in a public policy view, but also just like in a personal way, is enjoying things that travel with me, enjoying the story of something that got patched up, enjoying enjoying something that's traveled a longer distance that comes as passed down by family or something that's been like, you know, that's been patched up and repaired um, and not seeing these repairs or these nicks or these cracks as uh, as damage or somehow lessening an object or lessening my life, but actually enriching it in a way. And I think that really is true. We think, you know, obviously it's all about in a physical way that being true, but I think that's also been useful to me as someone who's uh uh, anyone who's experienced heartache in your life, and I think that's basically all of us, of thinking about those nicks and scratches that we've done, that we've experienced in our lives as being things that make life more valuable, rather than things that have actually weakened it or ruined this perfect veneer of how life is supposed to go. So that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately, just in both in terms of the physical realm and the mental realm. I love that. That reminds me of the shoes that I wear like 80% of the time. I have these leather shoes that I won't get rid of because I like I like how worn out they are personally. <laughs> There's just something about, you know, they're, they are comfortable and I like the way they look. I don't, I don't want new shoes. <laughs> Thanks, John. That's awesome. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so I don't have anything quite as beautiful, although I think somebody uh, sent me like, like a tweet reply saying that my upzones make them feel old. Um, because I was talking of Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> last week. And, and so um, this week. I was trying week, to think of, when did we talk about Pirates of the Caribbean last week? Um, last week. That, I think that was my down zone that, that I had been watching those movies because I didn't understand oh, them when yeah. I was a kid. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. I, um, I thought we were talking about the ride at Disney. I'm like, I don't remember talking about the ride. But yeah, we, we did talk about the movies, didn't we? Yeah, and now I'm really into the movies, and I'd love to go see the ride. That would be so fun. But now I'm going to make everybody feel even older because you can tell I um, have access to a Disney Plus account. Um, but I've been revisiting or really kind of visiting for the first time all of the Star Wars movies. 
And I watched it. Um, I watched one through six. I'm not quite finished with six, but I've been watching them through in order. Um, and I know this might trigger you, but I actually like one, two, three more than four, five, six. I know that's a huge problem for people. But what I think you have to understand is that number one came out when like before I was even in kindergarten. So to me, that's a classic movie. But for whatever <laughs> reason, I'm learning that people have major problems with that movie. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah. I don't. I'm not one of those purists. But you're talking to two people here who have uh, traveled around the country, uh, flown great distances and gotten up early mornings and stood in long lines just for the the experience of being able to go on Star Wars rides at Disney World and stuff. So we're- uh, That sounds uh, like so much fun. Now that okay. I've really, really, I fully understand the movies. I didn't understand them at all as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Now I understand it. And I would really like to go and see those rides. So I think that means you're going to have to come to a Strongtown staff retreat at some point. Yeah, if we can go see all of the Star Wars things, that would be really fun. And the Pirates of the Caribbean rides yeah. would be great, too. <laughs> all right. We're, you're in, Abby. All right. Sweet. John and I, I, I think, are... How many times have you been on Rise of the Resistance, John? Twice? Or just once? I think only, I think only one time. But maybe again uh, soon. I think you and I are going to head out here again maybe later this year. We'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping that you make it. Yes. I, I have myself had the uh, experience probably, I'm probably on like eight or nine times now, which is, um, that puts me probably in like the upper 1% of all people in the world because it's it's a long line and it's not been around very long, but it is the greatest ride. It is the greatest ride ever, Abby. And it's all like this, it's like 15, 18 minutes of Star Wars immersion and like deep immersion. It's really, yeah, you're in a starship and it's really cool. It's that really actually cool. might be kind of scary for me because when we did the immersive uh, World War One experience, yeah, we did that, that together. freaked me out a lot. <laughs> Uh, so well, I, I will be next to you on the, the in the World War One. I, I couldn't be next to you. Like we had to go separately. Yeah, you have to in, go separately, and you're in like a trench, yeah, trench warfare. Yeah. I at one point I had to take the glasses off just to make sure that yeah. everything was okay around me. That was intense. No, in uh, in Rise of the Resistance, it is immersive, and it's funny because the first time I went on it ever was with John, and the <laughs> the actors in the thing were very intense and you actually wow. did get a little bit of a, like it, it was, it was very real feeling and you're like, Whoa, uh, the, the actors have toned it down since I think in reaction to people flipping out maybe, <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we got like the original experience like very early on and it was, it was very intense. So I'll hold your hand, Abby. I'll be there with you. Well, thanks. All <laughs> right, guys, we will leave it there. Thank you both very much for joining me this week. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, guys. Take care. Let me show you what I'm about to do.